If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. And I've entitled our time, An Abrupt Ending to a New Beginning. Uh, by way of, of, of introduction, a pastor once told me that, that pastors should prayerfully exegete a text. That means to try to arrive prayerfully at, at, at the true meaning of the passage in front of us. But a preacher's work is not done there by simply exegeting a text. That a preacher must also exegete the times in which we live, what's going on in our world. And furthermore, a preacher should also exegete the hearts of God's people. In other words, he was setting up this triad that we live in a world and things are happening around us. And then these things that are happening around us, they tend to affect our hearts in such a way that, that, that many of varying emotions arise. And then he instructs us that, 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 that what God's people need most in those moments is an accurate uh, understanding of God's word so that God's word comes to bear upon the people so that God's word comes to bear upon the times that God's people might hear God's word that they might be encouraged and changed and comforted and that's what I want this morning I want to understand what's happening around us I want to ask you how is what is happening around us affecting your heart and on this beautiful Easter morning, I want to turn our hearts to Mark 16, because I think God has something to say about our times and about what these things are causing in us. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolling back, had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you shall see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. George Mambio is a British writer, environmentalist, and a political activist. And he has recently written an article related to what COVID-19 is doing to humanity. And here's what he writes. He says, we have been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort. And in many nations, we have begun to believe that we have transcended this material world. We have persuaded ourselves that we had repeated, reached the point that all civilizations seek, insulation from natural hazards. 
Now, as a result of COVID-19, the membrane of the bubble has been ruptured, and we find ourselves naked and outraged and exposed as the biology we appear to have banished, it storms through our lives. He says, let us not forget that this planet on which we live, it has multiple morbidities, some of which will make the coronavirus look, by comparison, easy to treat. Already, farming in some parts of the world is being hammered by drought, hammered by floods and fire and locusts. And when we call such hazards biblical, we mean that they are the kinds of things that happened to people long ago, to people whose lives we can scarcely imagine. But now, with increasing frequency, these things are happening to us. And how are we responding? We're fighting over toilet paper. I hope we never have to witness fights over food. But it's becoming difficult to see how we will not avoid it. He goes on to write, the temptation when this pandemic has passed will be to find another bubble we can hide in. He says, we cannot afford to succumb to it. From now on, we should expose our minds to the painful realities that we have denied for so long, and that is that we are vulnerable and naked. I think he's on to something, that we have lived in a bubble, that we have had inflated views of humanity, And then something like COVID-19 happens and the bubble is popped and the membrane is ruptured and our human condition is exposed that the world we live in is a dangerous place. And if the world we live in is a dangerous place, then the God from whom we stand under is also a dangerous God. And we're all taking precautionary measures to preserve life. We're rationing food. We're distancing ourselves from others, and some can do it better than others. We're turning our heads when we hear people cough, and it used to be that when we heard someone cough, we turned our head to see if they covered themselves, and now we're saying to ourselves, with a cough like that, you should not be out in public. We're fighting over tissue. We're frustrated because Clorox wipes are no longer on the aisles, and we can't find deep freezers anywhere. Behind all of these behaviors, there is a desire to live. At best, we're trying to prolong the inevitable. Because the scriptures say that this body is a tent. And it's breaking down. In 100 years, there will be all new people on the earth. And so he's right to say, let us expose our minds and hearts to our vulnerability. Amen to that. But I think he misses something. He offers no ultimate hope. 
It's a wake-up call to care about the planet, to see our vulnerability. But there is no place, according to this author, where we can run to. There is no bubble to shield us from the world. There is no bubble in which we can hide in that, 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 that triumphs over death, that triumphs over our vulnerability, that triumphs over our weakness. He says that there is no bubble out there, and we have to disagree because there is hope. There is a bubble. The finished work of Jesus. There and only there do we find security and safety and satisfaction. And Mark offers it to us. In this passage, I want to look at the words of the angel. I take this young man who is dressed in white in the tomb to be an angel. First, because it's consistent with the, all the other gospel writers. Secondly, because look at, at, at what he says when they see him. He says, do not be alarmed, fear not, that whenever angels showed up in the Bible, people were always afraid of them. And it's consistent right here that their first reaction is fear. But not only that, that, that when you look at how God deploys angels in the Bible, it is always when he has some breaking news from heaven and he entrusts them to his messengers whom he sends from that world where he is into our world to meet with us. Think about when Mary was told that she would have Jesus. An angel appeared. Think about Zechariah in the temple, and he was told that he and his wife would have a son. An angel appears. Think about Joseph when he was thinking about divorcing Mary because she thought he had been unfaithful. An angel appears. Think about when they went to Egypt because they were running from Herod, that, that an angel appears in a dream. And so it seems to me that this angel is bookending Mary's life. The angel shows up to announce you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a savior. And now that that son of Mary is in a tomb or was in a tomb, now this mother has to go and look for her son, and he's not there. But you know who is there? An angel. An angel has come to speak about this new beginning. And so I want our time to be shaken to be shaped by his words. What is this angel teaching Mary and us? The first thing is that death has been destroyed for you. Now, something's going on in the text. that if you look at Mark in, in, in three different verses, chapter 15, verse 40, chapter 15, verse 47, he writes about this group of women that's composed of Mary Magdalene, in whom demons were cast out of her, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and another woman who we think her, her name is Salome, that, that together these women and probably more have watched Jesus when he was crucified. They had watched the trial. They followed, I mean, they were following close. When all the disciples were away, this band of women was there at the trial, there at the cross, and then Mark says that when Jesus' body was put in the tomb, those same women were there. And so he tells us that the Sabbath has now passed. We're now on the Lord's Day. And what happened on the Sabbath? If you were Jewish, your business is shut down. And so it reads as if 
Mary did not get a chance to say goodbye to her son, that another man named Joseph actually took Jesus' body off the cross and gave him a burial. Uh, And it reads as if Mary's intent, now that the Sabbath is over, is to go and pay her respects, to go and anoint her son's body with more ointments and more oil. Now, here's the thing. Jesus' body has already been prepared for burial twice. If you go back to an earlier chapter in Mark, Mark 14, that's where the woman poured the nard, the pure nard, the alabaster flask on him, and his disciples rebuked her because it was a waste. It was 1.5 years of, 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 of salary. That, that's the, the, the magnitude of what she poured on Jesus. And Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She poured it all on him, and he saw that as being prepared for his burial. But then in the the chapter right before this, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea also anointed Jesus' body. Joseph was a wealthy man, and in John's gospel, we're told that he had help, that Nicodemus was with him. We're also told that they put 75 pounds of ointment on Jesus and then wrapped his body and then put Jesus in a tomb that had never been used before. So why in the world are these women three days later going to put more ointment and and anoint him more? Because in Jewish culture, they did not embalm. Egyptians did, but Jews did not. And it was normal for a family member to go and apply more anointing oil, more spices, because of the decay and the stench of death. This makes sense, right? In John, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, do you remember what Martha says? She says, teacher, it's been four days. There is certainly an odor by now. And so what, is, what are they doing? We think that they're going to apply more ointment to a decaying body that the stench of death would not be loud, so to speak. And then what would happen? The family member would come back later, and once the body had decomposed, they would unwrap the body and take the bones and put them in an ossuary into a bone box, And those bones would be taken into a residence or some other place. And then that tomb could be used again. And so when the text says that Jesus was put in a tomb that was unused, what what the other gospel writer was saying is that that tomb that Joseph of Arimathea gave to Jesus, no one had ever been in that one. No one. And yet when Mary gets here, Nothing is what she thought it would be. That on their way there, it dawned on them, we have the spices, we know where to go, but wait a minute, there's a big boulder 
that's in front of it. We saw it. We saw them roll the boulder to cover the tomb. And if you go back and read other gospels, that was something that the chief priests and the religious leaders commanded because they thought that one of Jesus' disciples would come and steal the body and then sort of prove that, hey, he's been resurrected. And so they charged Joseph with putting a stone there in the front and they put guards there so that no one could go in and get the body. And so here it is, three days later, these women are on the way with the spices ready to go and then it dawns on them on the way that wait a minute we got the spices we know where the tomb is but what about this stone in the way we we, we can't move it and when they get there it says the stone was gone it was rolled away and it was very large now in other gospels we know that that there was an earthquake And an angel of the Lord rolled away from the stone. The stone wasn't there. That wasn't what they thought would be there. Secondly, an angel is there. Where had the angels been? When Jesus was on the cross about to die, that, 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 when he was with Pilate, he said, I could at any moment summon legions of angels and they would fight for me. And Mary saw no angels. He never summoned any one of them. Not one of them eased his pain. And now when she gets to the tomb, now he's there? That's different. But by far the most abnormal thing in the passage is the fact that there is no body of Jesus there. There's no body for her to anoint. They saw where Jesus was tried. They saw where Jesus was crucified. They saw with their own eyes the tomb that he was put in. And so look at what the angel says in verse 6. You seek Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And notice what the angel says. He has risen. He is not here. Look at the place where they laid him. You saw where they laid him and look at that place. He is not in that place. And I think there's a subtle thing that we, we, we need to see in the passage. It's in verse 6. It's translated, he has risen. But in the Greek, the word there is, is passive, which, which could mean he has been raised. In other words, I think that's consistent with what's happening in this scene. That it was an earthquake. It was an angel who rolled away the stone. And this was an act of God the Father. And the angel is saying, and God the Father has raised his son. He's accepted the sacrifice. It is finished He died on the cross, and he has gone into death itself, and he has came out on the other side victorious. His heel was bruised in the fight, but he struck a mortal blow to to the serpent and to the sting of death. And this is colossal. It's unprecedented. It's never happened in the history of the world that Mary and those women, they went to do what they normally do when someone dies. We will go back and we will smell an odor. We will go back and we will anoint the body. But on this day when she went into the tomb, there was not an odor of death. There was a scent of resurrection. And right now, Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. 
And the good news is he did not do all of that. The suffering, the living, the dying, the agony. He did not do that just to show us how strong and powerful and mighty he is. The scriptures say he did that for us. So Paul says, for if we have been united in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death came by one man, that one man was Adam, but one man through one man, resurrection from the dead has come. Paul is saying that when Jesus went on the cross and went into the grave and he died and was raised, it's the first fruit of many more to come after him. Here is what it means, beloved. There is a bubble where you are safe, eternally safe. Death has been defeated by our mighty Christ, the victor. This is why D.L. Moody, he wrote an autobiography in 1900. And here's what he wrote. He says, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. He says, don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That, that is all. Out of this clay tentament into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto Jesus' glorious body. And that is good news. We need not fear death. Because our Christ has conquered it for us. This is what the angel is saying. He's not here. He has risen. And if you're in Jesus, that's true for you as well. The second thing the angel teaches us about this new beginning is that he is for you. And he will never, ever, ever lose you. Now. As a side note, something contrary to the norm is happening in this passage. And it's this reality that this angel makes women the first messengers of the good news. That the angel tells the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. It's, it, it's strange here because in that day in time, a woman's voice did not carry weight in court. That we have evidence that, that, that certain Jewish men would pray every morning that, thank God, I am not a woman. That one rabbi has written, it is better to burn the Torah than to give it to a woman to teach her. That in Jesus' day, men could divorce their women just with divorce certificates. In other words, that is what was happening in the day. And here is what we see. It's upside down in Mark 15. It's the men who are nowhere to be found. It's the men who have been lying and running away. And it's the women who have been following and following and following and following. 
He's doing something new, something consistent with how things should be. Women are equals, co-laborers in the kingdom. But not only look at, at, at that, because that's unique, but look at what he tells the women to do. First, he says, go to his disciples and Peter and tell them something. I mean, think about it. He, he uses Peter's name here. The angel uses Peter's name because the last time we saw Peter's name in Mark, it wasn't good. He was conniving and lying and running and, 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 and wreaking curses on himself. And the angel says, hey, you got to go get the disciples. Yeah, and that one too, right? But he also says the disciples, his disciples, go and get his disciples, not new disciples. Go and get the same ones he's been walking with, the same ones who are, were nowhere to be found. Go and tell them something. Now, this is probably where we should be scratching our heads. This is the point in the movie where we have to figure out how will King Jesus respond? Because in his day, when kings were crossed by their followers, they were killed. Herod, five days before he died, he summoned someone into his courts, someone who had been unloyal, Someone who had been on his inside uh, realm of subjects. Someone who was significant to him. And he had him killed. Five days before he died. He's on his deathbed. And before he dies, he watches someone who betrayed him be killed. And that someone was a man by the name of Antipas. And Antipas was Herod's own son. That's how kings treated those who committed treason. And that's not how this king treats his disciples. Jesus is a king. Pilate just said it. Jesus just owned it. But we're starting to see that what he does is unprecedented. This king does not crush or crucify his followers who committed treason. He's different. He extends grace. He tells them, I want to see you in Galilee. Y'all meet me there. I'm going there. Now, why Galilee of all places? Because it's where he commissioned them in the beginning. It was on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus went to Peter where Peter and his friends and, and brother had been toiling all night and caught nothing, it was there that the Messiah showed up and says, hey, go, go out a little bit deeper, and there you'll find something. He said, man, we've, we've been working all night, man, are you sure? And they did. And it was there that Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And it was there that Jesus says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. It was there on that sea in Galilee. And here is what you see Jesus doing. He says, let's go back to that place where it all began. And in John's gospel, they get there and they do the same thing. They go out and they fish and they catch nothing. And then Jesus shows up 
He says, hey, let's try this one more time. Cast it over that way a little bit more. And then they get a bunch of fish. And the text says that when Peter heard Jesus, he turned and he jumps out of the boat. And he jumps into the sea and he swam to the shore. And there when he got to the shore, what was Jesus doing? Did he have a knife in hand ready to cut Peter up? No. John says that Jesus made a charcoal fire and put some fish on the fire. Charcoal. Hmm. Charcoal. Hmm. Where have we seen charcoal before? In John's gospel, Peter stayed around a charcoal fire while Jesus was being punished. It was around a charcoal fire where Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus goes back to the first place where he called them, and he makes a charcoal fire. And if I'm Peter, when I smell the charcoal, I smell sin. I smell betrayal. It reeks of unfaithfulness. And what does Jesus do? He cooks them a meal of charcoal. That's his way of saying, it's finished. I'm for you. Your sin will not get in the way. I've atoned for it, and I still want you, and you will still go, and you will still be fishers of men, and I will change the world through you, these failing and imperfect disciples who are being overwhelmed with my grace. Do you see Jesus' posture towards them? He wants to see them. The angel says the master wants to see you, and it's not to destroy you. It's to serve you and to love you. And I think there's more here. Did you catch that phrase right there where the angel says, he is going before you to Galilee? Now, that's an interesting phrase because I don't think it means that we should interpret this temporally or chronologically. It's, the angel isn't saying he is going to get there first and be waiting on you. That's not how we understand that phrase. I think that phrase is being borrowed from the Old Testament and it's military language. Let me show you what I mean. Three verses, Exodus 13, 12, 21. When Pharaoh let the people of Israel go, God did not lead them the way of the Philistines, even though that would have been the closer way to the promised land. God did not lead them that way. Rather, he led them toward the Red Sea, because if he had led them this way, he says the people of Israel will be close and they will turn back and go back. But notice what, what, what Moses writes for us. And the Lord went before them by day in pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. You see that phrase? And the Lord went before them. Isaiah 45, the people of Israel are uh, in bondage. They're not in their land. And Isaiah is prophesying when they will not be in their land. But notice what he says. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed, and I will go before you, Israel, 
and I will level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Or what about Deuteronomy chapter 31? Moses says, I am 120 years old. I'm no longer able to go out and to come in. And the Lord has told me I will not cross over into Jordan, into the promised land with you. And here's what Moses tells him. The Lord himself will go before you. He will destroy the nations before you so that you will dispossess them. And Joshua shall go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Do you see what's happening? When they're in Egypt on the way out, the Lord will go before you. He will be in your front and he will be in your rear and he will protect you and provide for you and keep you so that where he intends you to get, you will get. In Isaiah, when Isaiah is prophesying of Israel being in bondage to the Babylonians, he says, but no, no, no. The Lord has called Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. I will raise him up and I will have his right hand and I will give him power and might over nations. And guess what? I will go before you and bars I will cut and doors I will break down. Why? To get you back into the land. And what about Exodus? When Moses says, I'm going to die, I can't go over. He says, but the Lord will go before you. Do you see what they're all saying? Whenever this language is used, it's used in a way to convey certainty. That God himself will fight for you. That God himself will not lose you. That God himself will go before and be behind. And there is nothing and no one that is stronger than him. Nations are nothing. And this would have been good news to the disciples. You want to know why? Because they're running from for their lives. They just saw Pilate and the religious leaders kill Jesus. They're in hiding when they hear this good news. And, the, and these women come to say, but the Lord will go before you. He will meet you in Galilee. This is the angel's way of telling those disciples, be not afraid. Ain't nothing nobody can do that's going to stop you from seeing the Lord of glory in Galilee. You will make it there safely because he will be on your front and your rear. You cannot fail. You will make it there. see the good news in this? His posture, he's for these disciples. He's not treating them as they deserve. He's giving them grace. He's renewing covenant. He's recommissioning. He is overlooking their sin because it's been atoned for on the cross. And he says, you will still go preach the good news. I have not stopped what I am doing in you. Your failures cannot disqualify. This you is to women who will do nothing more than try to go anoint. He says, I'm for you. And these men who will go be on the front lines, I'm for you. And there is nothing you can do to disqualify you from me. And it's certainty. God's people will always get to where God wants to get them. And we're not like the people of Israel being led by Joshua into a temporal land across the Jordan. We have a greater Joshua. 
who's promised to bring us to a greater land. And we will get there. It's why I love the lines from this hymn, In Christ Alone. No guilt in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to my final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand till he returns or calls you home. You will get there. Here in the power of Christ, we stand. This angel is preaching the good news. He's for you. He wants to see you. And you will get to where he wants you to be at his home with him. The last thing we see in this passage is this. You'll soon see him just as he told you. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the angels. He says, there you will see him just as he told you. Something else new is happening in the passage. You might remember the Old Testament. That no one could see the face of God and live. You might remember when Moses wanted to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord put him in a cleft of a rock and the Lord passed by him and Moses could only see the rear of the Lord. You might remember Isaiah and this is just a vision. He has a vision of the Lord of hosts sitting on a throne and the the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord of hosts. And he says, woe is me. My eyes have seen the Lord. Right? So, and Paul would say that, 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 that he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him. And here is what the angel says. The angel says, you will see Jesus. Just like he just told you, you will. Now you might be saying, but Pastor L. Didn't they kind of walk with Jesus? Didn't they have meals with him? Didn't they, didn't, weren't they like friends? Yes. But something's different here. There were moments in Jesus' life where his divinity broke out of his humanity. But by and large, Jesus' humanity clothed his divinity. There were moments, right, when he performed miracles. There were moments when he went on the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples got a glimpse of who he really is and then it went away. There were moments, right, when when the the soldiers came to crucify him, he said these words and in a moment they all kind of fell back to the ground. There were moments when his divinity kind of burst out, but by and large it was closed. But the Jesus that they are seeing after his resurrection, it's the glorified, resurrected Jesus. It's it's not a glimpse. This is like the real thing. They get to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor for these 40 days that he lingered. And you know what? In his glorified body, Jesus was talking to him. 
and they didn't even know who he was until he broke bread, and then they could see. In his glorified body, he taught them, and their hearts burned. In his glorified body, he just kind of phased through rooms that were locked. So something is going on with what they are given the privilege to behold. It's different, and it's unlike anything else that they had seen before that. But for 40 days, Jesus lingers. And for 40 days, he teaches them, and their hearts burn. And for 40 days, he opens up the Old Testament and connects everything about him and the law and the prophets and and the writings to himself. And for 40 days, it says that that he made a meal for them. And for 40 days, he appeared to them and 500 others, says Paul. What's going on there? I think they get a glimpse. They get a glimpse. Of Jesus in his glory. That for a moment, for 40 days, that things start to look a lot like the garden where God walked with him in the cool of the day. That Jesus' divinity and his humanity were intact at the same time. For 40 days, their eyes could behold the Lord of glory in his power and his might. For 40 days, they got to see this. And it makes sense, right? That in Acts, when Jesus is taken from them, it says that they could not take their eyes off of him. They saw God in his splendor. And in his might. And they saw themselves. They saw themselves embodied in this God-man. They saw humanity fully redeemed and fully made after the image of God. And they saw God Almighty walking the earth. And for 40 days, God allowed them to, to be with him. It makes perfect sense that when Jesus is taken away from them, that they can't take their eyes off of him. The angel says, why do you keep looking? He's going to come back. But I get it. Their eyes have seen the one who loves them and has given himself for them. And John says, if we knew all that Jesus did, there will be no books that could contain everything he did in front of the disciples. And so for 40 days, they got to see beauty and splendor of God. Then he was taken away. And the Spirit was poured out on God's people. And the Spirit begins to mediate and teach and train and make us new. Make no mistake about it, beloved, that the Spirit is here to prepare us to see Jesus face to face. That one day we will see him. One day our eyes can behold the Lord of glory. One day we're going to see ourselves fully made new. One day we're going to lay eyes on the one who went to a cross for us. One day we'll see the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. And in a twinkling of an eye, we will be made like him. And he will finish this work that he has started. And one day we can dwell 
in the house of the Lord forever. And one day God will make his dwelling place in a beautiful and special play with us. And one day we will walk on this earth and it will be restored. And one day we won't need a bubble to protect us because all threats will be destroyed and we will be free. That's why the hymn writer says, oh, I want to see him and to look upon his face and there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. They're not the only ones who are going to get to see Jesus. Easter says that you will as well. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, he closes with these words and he says, As he spoke, he no longer looked to them as a lion. And the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. In which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what you're destined to, where every day will be better than the day before, and it will be because we will be with Jesus, and we'll behold him, and we'll be made new. This is yours if you're in the gospel. Pray with me. Dear Jesus, I do pray that you will write the words of your messenger, this angel, upon our hearts. This wasn't just something for them. If we see ourselves in the story, these are truths that are for us as well. You've defeated death for us. You are for us and will not lose us. And one day, we will see you. And we will enjoy you. Would you give us hope and comfort in these times, I pray, for Jesus' sake, amen. All right, Redeemer, I'm going to pronounce God's benediction over you. And it's in your bulletin, and so if you want to follow along, you're more than welcome to, but it comes from Revelation chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And grace to you from the seven spirits that are around his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves you and has freed you from your sins by his blood. He has made you into a kingdom of priests unto his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.